This is a Federal News Network podcast. No one knows what an infrastructure bill precisely would look like, but it seems likely Congress will end up printing another trillion dollars anyhow. It might be months before the spending takes final form, but now is the time for contractors to start planning and get their share. More now from Senior Vice President for Information Solutions at Deltec, Kevin Plexico. Kevin, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's ask you how you keep track of how this thing is shaping up, because it seems to morph and change almost daily, depending on who's talking to whom. Well, we we have a team of analysts that have basically been devoted to monitoring what's come out of the Biden administration. There's a, a number of initiatives, including their latest budget proposal that have come out. And of course, the American Jobs Plan is the big one, which is primarily focused on infrastructure that our team is really just devoted to monitoring how it's going to shape up and what it means for the contracting industry. Yeah, because infrastructure means the traditional IT vendors that we, you and I have dealt with so many years, but also builders, architects, construction, and all of the engineering would be swept into this as well, we can pretty much assume, correct? Yeah, I mean, this one's pretty broad in terms of how it defines infrastructure. I mean, you have the traditional kind of transportation infrastructure, which you and I would think of as highways, you know, mass transit, that type of thing. But it also has water infrastructure, electrical infrastructure. It has schools and housing and uh, living facilities for seniors. It's got a little bit of everything. And then it also has some elements of it that are focused on manufacturing and workforce training. Yeah. And so the question then, maybe the most fundamentally difficult question to know is the stream by which the money could come to contractors. That is to say, will it be federal contracting or more likely these will be through block grants, loans, just direct entitlements to the states and counties? And it would be their contracting mechanisms. That is kind of hard to picture at this point, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to to kind of forecast that, but just based on the way the money is allocated to these different types of infrastructure and different types of projects, you could basically get a good guess that the two-thirds of it is going to kind of flow down in the form of state and local funding or higher education and K-12 institutions, with just about a third of it being retained at the federal level for things like veterans facilities, that type of thing. So many federal contractors then that don't have state and local chops would be wise to maybe start figuring that out, would you say? If they're in the, in the infrastructure space, for sure. I think there's also an element for broadband and technology R&D, which I think, again, would primarily be at the, the state and local level. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're a federal contractor uh, that's doing infrastructure-related work, this is a good time to kind of turn your eyes to the state and local market, where for the most part, a lot of those funds are spent anyway, given the nature of transportation spending at the state and local level. And we also see some convergence of the electronic and digital technologies with the standard infrastructure construction because roads are getting smarter, grids are getting more intelligent, bridges have different types of uh, broadband mechanisms built into them to be able to track tolls and all of this. So do you see that kind of convergence happening where teaming with the right partner might help in future contracting situations? So uh, I guess I would put it this way. I mean, you would think that that convergence would take place and this infrastructure legislation would take that on. I will say that the proposal that came from President Biden was largely silent on kind of smart transportation mechanisms. It was really largely focused on just kind of traditional infrastructure modernization. It didn't get too deep into the weeds on 
what type of uh, kind of technology convergence would take place in that. No one would expect that to be the case at some point. Yeah, you see like an old retaining wall in New York City with lights built into it. So somebody put electric wires in a concrete wall 75 years ago. It's all burned out. None of it works. So maybe it would be a little bit more modern approach, I guess, now. We're speaking with Kevin Plexico. He's the Senior Vice President for Information Solutions at Dell Tech. And what about the possibility of contractors maybe helping influence how the legislation comes out based on their knowledge. Is that something that's doable, have you seen? Uh, I, I wouldn't say that we've seen that show up yet, but as we get into this turning into legislation, I'm sure lobbyists will be involved in helping to shape the, the nature of it. I think you know one of the example areas that I think is interesting is there's a big focus on electric power and battery-operated vehicles, for example, and a big switchover to battery-operated vehicles. And that would be kind of an interesting wrinkle as you think about infrastructure that doesn't naturally flow into your head is like a, a key part of infrastructure but uh you know think about how many cars the uh, the federal government has for example and that would be a major shift in terms of emphasis that i can see contractors having an influence over all right so as the negotiations drone on and different committees discuss this and the delegations go to and from the white house what are some specific measures contractors should be taking now to be ready for when something does get enacted well, I think the key thing is just making sure you understand the provisions that have been proposed, because that's going to draw you into certain areas of infrastructure and where the investments are placed. And I think it's probably unrealistic for most companies to think they're going to touch on all the different areas that are uh, incorporated into the American Jobs Plan. But, you know, for example, someone who provides power cabling and electricity infrastructure, that's one stream that's very focused. And a lot of that has to also do with climate change measures and kind of preventing the shift in the climate. If you're focused in Department of Veterans Affairs, then you want to be focused on medical care facilities. And what does that mean for how they're going to make investments? Where might they be pushing those investments? And, you know, we've talked a lot about this notion of what they call shovel-ready projects. You would expect that they're going to focus on things that have already been identified as a need area and so trying to get your arms around some of those areas that were identified, even under the Trump administration, when, when uh, he was trying to push forward with an infrastructure legislation, I think would be a good place to start in terms of identifying where these priority areas might be. That would then imply making sure that you've got a good roster of subcontractors if you're a prime or if you're a sub in general, finding the most promising primes to try to get together with. Yeah, and I think that you probably have time on that one if you're a, you know, a likely prime contractor, uh, for sure. This is uh, one that I think is going to have a long tail associated with it. This is probably going to be you know, $2 trillion spent over 10 years in this industry. As you and I were talking about our retirement days, we'll probably be retired by the time all this money is, re- <laughs> is spent. Uh, but I think that's the, the key thing is just paying attention to where their focus is going to be and how this promulgates itself into legislation at some point and figuring out where those funding streams are going to go by agency, really. And I would think that contractors would want to make sure that their accountability and compliance systems are totally up to date because, let's face it, we can expect this money to be accompanied by not only oversight from several different bodies, the IG groups and so on, but also the labor practices, the labor rates, a lot of those things related to the people doing work on the projects. That's going to get a lot of scrutiny, I think, given the Biden administration's bent. Yeah, and I think that's we can look at the uh, the old economic stimulus legislation from you know many years ago and how they set up its own little uh, oversight body to monitor the money and track it and provide transparency to it. And I think that's probably going to be a footprint we're going to see as, as kind of a model going forward for these types of legislation. 
you know, we even had with the COVID and government relief efforts there, specific tracking in the federal procurement data system for how they were going to track the money that was spent related to that. So I, I certainly would expect that similar kind of oversight to take place with a piece of legislation of this magnitude. All right. Kevin Plexico is Senior Vice President for Information Solutions at Dell Tech. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision, and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.